Hey, Planet Money listeners, when you're done with this episode, check out NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour for intelligent talk about books, movies, and television. You can find it on iTunes under podcasts. My wife and I have this thing we do when one of us is right. It's a tiny thing. We do it a lot. I'm not proud of it. It's this. We say this one word. See? That one word. See? It can mean anything. It can mean... I told you this pasta is more delicious when you add extra cheese. It can mean, I told you we didn't need to bring sweatshirts. We do it so much, it's gotten to the point where if I just raise my eyebrows at certain times, my wife knows what I mean. See? The world, of course, is full of people raising their eyebrows, talking about how they're right. Experts we talk to for the show are sometimes so certain they're right, they don't even think their arguments are arguments. They just think they're the truth. Pundits write columns about how right they are and how if only the rest of the world would follow their advice, everything would be great. You see the problem with this, beside how annoying it is. It doesn't really go anywhere. You don't learn anything from being right. So today, for the show, we thought we would try the opposite. Talk to some smart, interesting, thoughtful people about times they got things really, really wrong. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today on the show, we went out and found people to talk about their mistakes. One's a small one. Another one cost millions of dollars. Third one broke someone's heart. Here we come to a turning of the season. When Matt Levine graduated from law school, he got a job at one of the fanciest corporate law firms in New York. Beautiful office, high up in a skyscraper in midtown Manhattan, free catered meals three times a day, which you were going to need because the hours were very, very long, especially for this one project. I remember going to sleep at like, you know, 3 or 4 a.m. under my desk and waking up at 6 a.m. to go back to work, um, which was not that unusual, but it was, um, I remember it because it was my birthday. Um, So, Did you really sleep under your desk at work? Not like every night, but yes. (laughs) Or like next to my desk. Matt's law firm was representing a small chain of stores in the Midwest. The chain was involved in this deal, and the negotiations went on for months. Matt's job was to keep track of all the tiny but totally critical details, all the little pieces that got hammered out. He'd add them to the contract, this many years, this amount of money, under those specific conditions. Oh, we changed that. Got to revise the contract again. Finally, they close the deal. The big, important people sign all the documents, and it's done. It's official. Matt immediately goes home to get some sleep. The next morning, Matt comes into the office and kind of starts cleaning things up, going through old emails from the deal. And he finds this one email, and he thinks, oh, my God, did I just make a $25 million typo in that contract? The contract that he'd written and everyone had just signed said his clients were supposed to get $400 million for this one part of the deal. But that email from during the negotiations said very clearly his clients were supposed to be getting $425 million, $25 million more. Matt thinks, did I just cost our clients $25 million? No, I couldn't have screwed that up. First, I was like, well, no, I'm sure there was just another email. But as I didn't find that other email, I got more and more worried for, you know, for my career and for the client. And yeah, there was no other email. Two little numbers on one page out of hundreds, but it was twenty five million dollars. Matt thinks I am definitely getting fired. He calls his boss. His boss says, we got to call the client. Tell him we messed this up right now. 
we're this very expensive New York law firm, and the client are these nice Midwestern guys. And we called them up, and we explained what happened. And he paused for a minute, and then he just started laughing uproariously. He was he was quietly pleased that these fancy New York lawyers actually still made mistakes like everybody else. He was noisily pleased. Yeah, he was really <laughs> he was he was cheering us. Yeah. More surprising was what the guy said next. He said, "Ah, let me call them. I'll fix it." And that was pretty much it. Because I was pretty sure, you know, we had cost him $25 million and I was in big trouble. And he was just like, ah, we'll fix it. No problem. The other side was giving up $25 million they were legally entitled to. It said it right there in the document, bound by signatures, backed by the entire American court system. They just went back and changed it. It was surprising to me that it was so easy. It was surprising to me that no one was like, wow, let's split it in half or like, um, you know, or like, well, you got to give us something for that. Right. I mean, I was, I I didn't necessarily expect that it would cost $25 million, but I thought it would cost something. Right. I thought that, you know, I thought it was a a game of, of, you know, you sort of score points and they had scored this point through my fault and they were going to get something for it. What Matt realized is this business may be a game, but it's not what economists call a one time game, at least not most of the time. It's more like an infinite game. It's not two strangers facing off for a moment, each one trying to get as much as they can out of the other. It's people who are going to have to live with each other, see each other again, and down the road, maybe write some other 600-page contract. It's not the end of the deal, right? It's not just you cut a check and you walk away. I mean, they're paying us, they're paying our client for uh, providing services for the next couple of years to kind of get their business running that they were buying, right? So they had every reason to keep a good relationship and both for that deal and in general, to just sort of keep a reputation for being honest and for dealing fairly with people. There's the weird other side of this, which is, does any of it matter? Why hire the fanciest lawyers? Why stay in the office until four in the morning? I, I, I wondered that a lot when I was there and a lot more after I left. Right? <laughs> and you, So the answer is probably none of it matters at all, really? most of the time. But- Where it matters is when they don't want the same thing, right? When the business falls apart, when people are losing money, when there's a disagreement, then they're going to look at this document. And whether or not the document reflects what they thought it said, what the document actually says is what's going to matter. In fact, Matt says, there is a lawsuit going on right now that hinges on a single word, the word and. The big casino company, Caesars, is being sued by some bondholders over that one word. The contract says and. Caesars says Come on, that clearly should be an or. Matt imagines the contract was written by some 26-year-old kid who was sleeping under his desk and who didn't give that and a second thought. And nobody, nobody knows Let the earth fall from our shoulders Don't carry it all, don't carry it all So there are mistakes about little things, a number, a word. And then there are mistakes about bigger things, like, say, an entire country. In the late 1990s, Liaquat Ahmed was an executive at this investment company. His job was to take other people's money and buy bonds, basically lend it to companies and governments around the world and get paid some interest. He was a conservative investor. He mostly bought really safe bonds. He didn't get paid much interest, but he always got paid back. At some point, though, he wondered if he might be playing it too safe. He's looking at Russian bonds that paid a lot of interest, around 20%. Now, normally a high interest rate meant something was risky. But there was a very compelling idea out there about why lending money to the Russian government was a safe bet. 
there was a saying at the time that Russia was too nuclear to fail, that there was no way that the U.S. government was going to allow Russia to sink into economic chaos uh, because of the nuclear weapons there. Sort of a terrifying version of too big to fail. Exactly. And in the years leading up to this moment, even countries that did not have nuclear weapons had been bailed out by the U.S. and by the International Monetary Fund. Happened in Mexico in 1994 and again in the Asian financial crisis of 97. I said to myself, look, if the combination of the U.S. government and the IMF is always going to step in and help out uh, when there's a problem. This sounds like a no-brainer. So in 1998, Lyakit's firm lent hundreds of millions of dollars to the Russian government. You know where this is going. This is, after all, a show about people getting things wrong. But here's how Lyakit got the news. It was just a few months later. I had actually gone to Kenya, where I'm from, to visit my family. And then I was just getting onto a flight to fly back, and I'm at the airport watching CNN, and the report was the Russians uh, have announced that they are not paying interest on their debt. Um, and so, you know, my heart sank. I had to take a 18-hour flight back to New York. What was that flight like? <laughs> I've had happier flights. Russia was, in fact, not too nuclear to fail. The U.S. government had decided that the Russian economy can collapse. The nuclear weapons will be fine. This was not a devastating blow for Lyakit's firm. The investment in Russia was just a small fraction of the firm's investment. Still, one of his clients fired him because of the mistake. We were left napping. Uh, and so were Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse and Goldman Sachs. I mean, every investment bank uh, lost uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. I hear this story and I think of it as foreshadowing the financial crisis of 2008 in lots of ways. But Lyakit says the lesson here goes way beyond finance. It points to this really basic error in the way we think about the world. We take a small number of events and we just assume they tell us how the world always is. You go a couple times to a restaurant and there's a long wait. Then anytime someone asks you about it, you say, oh, yeah, that place, it's always packed. You see a couple shaky economies get bailed out and you say to yourself, shaky economies always get bailed out. Russian bonds are a no-brainer. In fact, if two countries got bailed out, what you know is two countries got bailed out. That's it. Lyakit says shortly after this whole thing happened, he got out of the investment business and started writing books about financial crises. The books are good. Our final story is from Megan McArdle, who writes about economics for Bloomberg View. Her story is about love, and trust me, this story does belong on our show. Specifically, it's about a guy she met when she was in her early 30s. Every time we went on a date, it was great. It was just easy in a way that a lot of people had said to me, like, when you meet someone and it's the right person, you'll know because it'll be easy. I totally thought this one could be the one pretty early. He was handsome and quirky. When her grandfather died, he took care of her. They made pancakes on weekends. Everything was great. It was just this one very small thing. <laughs> Marriage. They just didn't talk about it. Megan assumed they were headed that way, but it just didn't come up. I finally, just one day, I think it was a Sunday morning, we were lying in bed, and I said, do you ever think about getting married? What did he say? 
Um, we had a long, unpleasant conversation about how he just wasn't sure. They didn't really resolve it. And the relationship went on this way for years. Megan figured, you know, sometimes it takes a while. Then one night, she mentions that her mom and aunt have been scoping out a wedding venue. And I mentioned this. He said, you know, I think it's sort of sweet. And I said, well, are you, they think we're getting married. Are you ready to get married? And he said, yes, I, I think I'm ready to get married. How did you feel? Uh, elated. I woke up thinking, you know, wow, like not even thinking, oh, what would the wedding be like or whatever? Just thinking, wow, you know, I've, I've, I've got this great guy and um, we're going to make a life together, a whole life. I remember like wanting to skip on the train platform, just having this resolved and knowing that it was um, it was finally over. I knew what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, etc. And then uh, four days later, on a Saturday morning, he said that he had made a terrible mistake and I should move out. You should move out. Yeah. <laughs> so he'd always wanted me to, I had this little, tiny, extremely cheap apartment in Manhattan and he'd always wanted me to keep it because I moved into his much larger place in Hoboken, and now I kind of knew why. So I moved back into this uh, tiny little apartment, and uh, which was sort of appropriately, it was like a cave. It, had, uh, it was so dark during the day that I actually had to keep the lights on all the time. And I sat in my cave for about six months and cried. Megan says she spent a lot of time playing video games, one really stupid one that came with her TiVo, where you just connected these dots. And thinking back, Wondering, what had she missed? She'd missed a lot. One moment in particular stood out. It was from pretty early on in the relationship. We were out with some friends of his, and we were seated at a table with a girl who was not a friend of his. She was like a friend of a friend of his. And somehow the topic of saying I love you came up. And so the three of us are talking, and he says to this stranger, well, I, I won't say I love you until... Um, until I'm totally sure it's the one, you know, like I've, I've uh, never said I love you to her and I have no intention of doing so anytime soon. <laughs> and, like, this was not a conversation we had had. <laughs> this was a conversation he was having about me with a stranger. <laughs> next to um, you. Next to me. It was a really big warning sign about his approach to the relationship. I, I mean, I should have had it out that night and I didn't. And the end result was that I wasted three years on a relationship that I should have known pretty early on wasn't going anywhere. She thought about this when she was sitting in her apartment playing that video game. And all of a sudden, the mistake she had made seemed really obvious. It was, in fact, the sort of thing she wrote about all the time. It even had a name, the sunk cost fallacy. It's the idea that there are a lot of things in life that are like a sunken ship. You have invested a lot of money in it, and now it's gone, and you can't get it back. And this is a really core idea in economics because the rational thing to do with sunk costs is to ignore them. What you should do is, is just make your decision as if it hadn't happened. But instead, what most people do is that they think, oh, well, I've lost all this money. I need to try to get it back. And so often what happens is they pour more and more and more into this futile attempt to recover what they've lost. And that's exactly what I was doing over and over and over again. I just couldn't let go and say, you know what, I, I invested all this time and he's great, but this relationship is not going anywhere and I have to let it go and go look for someone that is. This story does have a happy ending. She met someone else and they got married. 
She's also had some luck dealing with the sunk cost fallacy. She recently broke up with a vacuum cleaner that she'd spent a lot of money on but just would not get the dog hair off the couch. She went out and bought a different one. It works great. Special thanks today to the great Tim Harford, who talked to us for this show, but who got left on the cutting room floor. He is the author of the book, The Undercover Economist. Matt Levine now works for Bloomberg View, where he writes brilliantly and hilariously about finance. Liaquet Ahmed's books include Lords of Finance, about the Great Depression. And Megan McArdle has a book called The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. If you're looking for more to listen to, check out NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can find it in iTunes under podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jess Jang. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. So raise a glass to turnings of the season. See? Can't believe you seed me. That's not a seed. <laughs> I didn't know it was a verb. It's a verb in my house. It's a verb in my house, though. No.